the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Welcome to the good old Grateful Dead cast. This episode continues our celebration of the music on American Beauty with a deep dive into the final track on side one, Candyman. Our guest list for this episode might be the most inclusive yet, and we can't wait to present such luminous voices as Bob Weir, Amir Barlev, Ned Lajan, Howard Wales, Michael Brewer, our resident deadcologist David Lemieux, and Gary Lambert, and we're very pleased to announce the deadcast debut of Mr. David Crosby. Stoked to have Cros on the show. We'll also have a track-by-track breakdown with Tape Vaulters Mike Johnson and Brian Kehue. If you dig this podcast and you're new to us, welcome. We have a lot of other episodes for you to check out, so make sure to visit us at dead.net slash deadcast, where you'll find the 10 episodes from season one, which contain episodes about the eight songs on Working Man's Dead, and two amazingly wonderful bonus episodes you'll be sure to enjoy. Also keep in mind we post companion materials for each episode on our website, dead.net slash deadcast, and you can link from there to any and all of the podcasting platforms available. Please help this podcast by subscribing, hitting that like button, and if the spirit moves you, leave us a review. Thank you very much. It is the 50th anniversary of American Beauty, and the Grateful Dead have prepared a three-CD set reissue of this classic album, which includes a pristine remastering of the album's 10 tracks on disc one, as well as an unreleased live show from February 18, 1971, at the Capitol Theater, which was mixed from the original 16-track reel-to-reel multi-tracks at Bob Weir's TRI Studios. Along with this impeccably remastered three-disc set, we also offer you a new batch of Angel Share Audio, Out now are not only the full band acoustic demos for American Beauty, but also the rest of the studio outtakes from the American Beauty recording sessions. Be sure to check out the Angel Share American Beauty audio at your favorite streaming service or download provider and put yourself inside Wally Hyders in 1970 as the boys lay down tracks on their studio masterpiece. Quite a bit is revealed in this episode about one of the most enduring songs in the Grateful Dead catalog, Candyman. This song is rooted in the American folk tradition, and Garcia and Hunter crafted a timeless song that not only brought that tradition into focus, but also psychedelicized it as only they could. The Grateful Dead brought it to life in a way that never failed to draw a massive reaction from the audience. Kick back and listen to the how, why, and where with our own resident candy man, Jesse Jarno. The last song on the first side of American Beauty is the album's longest. The Dead were no stranger to studio tracks too extended to fit on singles. But of course, Candyman wasn't what's become of the baby, though it was written barely a year later.
It's all fairly subtle. But from an arrangement perspective, Candyman is one of the richest songs on American beauty. At the core, of course, is amazing songwriting with deep roots. Tales from the Golden Road co-host Gary Lambert. Candyman, one of those quintessential Garcia Hunter songs that is a study in contradictions. It's this very almost soothing, lulling, seductive song. And it's also got this undercurrent of menace. And implied violence, and, you know, a threat to blow a guy away with a shotgun. And yet it's also got that, that nice come on to it. You know, the, the, the Candyman is this sort of sinister and yet very appealing, alluring character. And of course, you've got your gambling motif, your ever popular gambling motif. It became a signature for Jerry Garcia. In later years, especially... Deadheads would cheer when Garcia announced that the Candyman was in town, as if they were one and the same. Here's a little bit from September 18th, 1987, on the 30 Trips Around the Sun box set. Listen to the roar that fills Madison Square Garden when the song achieves title. To explain the origin of Candyman, here's Deadcast musicology correspondent Bob Ace Weir. There's a tradition in New Orleans music and urban and rural blues, the Candyman tradition. And there are a number of different Candyman. The Candyman shows up a number of different places. And here's Jerry Garcia speaking to Jim Ladd in 1981. And it's also part of me and Hunter's, uh, Hunter and I have rewritten folk music, you know, <laughs> that's been part of our process, has been to have been to rewrite famous folk songs, like, so Candyman is like a famous uh, folk image, you know what I mean, it's all over the place, there's there's three or four Candyman tunes in the, in the, the tradition, and, uh, well, it's like our Casey Jones song, or like our Stega Lee song, you know what I mean? There were many Candymen. Here's Rosetta Howard and the Harlem Hamthats with their song, The Candyman, from 1938. Candyman Blues came into circulation via the Reverend Gary Davis. This version is from 1957. The Candyman even made the leap to pop music with the Fred Neal and Beverly Ross song, recorded by Roy Orbison in 1961 and reaching number 25 on the charts. It even gave name to Roy Orbison's backing band, The Candyman. Candyman, 
Almost certainly, Hunter and Garcia were leaning on the earliest known version of Candyman Blues, recorded by Mississippi John Hurd in 1928. Of all the Candyman antecedents, this one is the most familiar. Listen to the first lines. When all your ladies all gather round, that good sweet candy man's in town, is the Candyman, is the Candyman. In case it's not totally obvious what a Candyman is, we refer to the Underground Dictionary, published in 1971 by Eugene E. Landy, Ph.D., later employed, and de-employed, as private doctor to Brian Wilson. The Underground Dictionary defines Candyman, noun, as seller of drugs, see, pusher. By 1970, it was obviously high time for a new Candyman. Like Casey Jones a year before, Candyman was an old folk tradition updated for new use. Unlike Casey Jones, where Robert Hunter had introduced cocaine into the story of the doomed engineer, the Grateful Dead's version of Candyman more or less erases anything that might be construed as a drug reference, besides winking at several decades of drug songs also called Candyman. Funny, that Hunter. Here's Garcia again in 1981. We like to go in there and muddy the water <laughs> by writing current versions of those tunes. You know, and and uh, mostly because the characters are appealing. And that Candyman guy is a guy, everybody knows that guy. You know, like the Candyman guy is like any number of dope dealers, you know, or uh, just characters that are around, you know. As a footnote, Garcia and Hunter weren't the only ones with the idea to muddy these particular waters. It wasn't the basis for their Candyman, but folk jazz songwriter Terry Collier put out a 1968 single called You Gotta Miss Your Candyman, using a similar strategy with references to different folk songs, including a few that might be familiar to dead fans. Said you better listen, baby. You might miss me when I'm gone, Grateful Dead version of Candyman on tape is April 3, 1970, on the last night of a tour that started on St. Patrick's Day. Near the end of that run, Robert Hunter's first tour, the band found themselves in Florida with a few days off, which would result in the writing of one of their most famous songs, a story we'll tell in much more detail in a future Deadcast. But at the first gig after that infamous songwriting session in Cincinnati, it wasn't that song they debuted, but Candyman. Here's what a very early Candyman sounded like a few weeks after that, April 18th, 1970, at the Family Dog in San Francisco. It was pretty loose at first. Mostly the band played it in the acoustic sets, but it showed up electric, too. It certainly wasn't fully formed just yet. Here's a little bit from Winterland, April 15th, 1970, on the 30 Trips Around the Sun box set. Look out, look out, the One of the most fascinating scenes in Amir Barlev's wonderful documentary, Long Strange Trip, shows the band rehearsing at the Roundhouse in London during their brief visit in May 1970. In it, 
we see in here Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, and Bob Weir rehearsing the Candyman harmonies and demonstrating a bit of their group dynamic. Sing it out, man. I mean, don't sing it loud, but sing it out. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux. One thing that really struck me when I first heard it was the vocals on the on the American Beauty version of it. And it's interesting because the footage that we see from London in Long Strange Trip of them practicing the, the harmonies to it and Phil kind of cracking the whip and saying, oh, Bob, your part's here and Jerry's here and I'm here, whatever it was. It showed how hard these guys worked. To discuss the footage, here's Amir Barlev, director of Long Strange Trip, Happy Valley, and other excellent documentaries. You know the scene in Drugstore Cowboy when Matt Dillon is giving his drugs to William Burroughs, and William Burroughs is sort of sorting through it and saying, nah, nah, pretty good, good stuff. Ah, this. He pulls out one bottle and says, now this, this is the real goods. Well, that that conversation, I thought about that moment in the movie when I had an early conversation with David Lemieux about the available archive. And David basically said, well, there's this, there's that, you know, there's a little bit of this, there's a pretty good that, but the real goods, you know, the stuff they're going to want to inject in the main line is the May 1970 footage where the band takes their first trip to Europe. We got it. It was film reels. We got it transferred. And I saw right away that indeed it was the straight dope. And it's beautifully shot. One of the cinematographers is, is a young Dick Pope. Dick Pope later went on to shoot lots of big budget features. But this is back when he was working for the BBC. And it's shot in a very classical documentary fashion. And it's, it's something the Grateful Dead didn't really go for any other time to have a proper documentary crew just observing them in cinema verite style. The cream of the crop is this roundhouse practice session where they're working on harmonies for Candyman. Probably other people can tell you better than I can the story of how they learned from CSNY how to do, you know, multi-part harmonies. As it happens, we have David Crosby here to explain. What happened is they heard us doing it and they said, well, that's not where we were headed, but that's kind of really good and people like it. And we can do that. It won't sound like them, but it, we can do that. And it'll be fun. It'll be our version. And so they tried it and they liked it. We didn't teach them jack shit. We just sang really good in front of them and they, and they were listening. You know, they're smart guys, man. More from Cross in a few moments. But you're really watching in this 1970 footage, you're watching it unfold, watching them try to learn how to do multi-part harmonies and particularly watching the dynamic between Phil, who's very classically trained, and Jerry, who has this kind of, you know, older brother. There is a little bit of the Spinal Tap to it. You know, there's a scene in Spinal Tap where they're doing multi-part harmonies at Elvis's grave, and, and they're not quite getting it, you know. So if I'm going, since my baby left me, you know, that, that's a little bit of what's happening with Weir and, uh, and Lesh, and Lesh is, is really kind of coming down on Weir about not getting it exactly right. 
And it's, it's amazing to watch these guys work through it. And then they do get it right. And then they go for sandwiches. <laughs> they call for sandwiches from Sam Cutler. I just, I like the dynamics of it. It's really interesting to see how Jerry deals with the other guys in the band, how he kind of softens Phil's somewhat aggressive tack and how he also, you know, is encouraging of young Weir, you know, and it gets to the whole genius of, of Garcia and putting together this motley assortment of musicians, a rhythm guitar player who's heavily dyslexic, you know, and, and has a very odd sense of tempo. Uh, Phil, uh, you know, a bass player who is never played the bass, <laughs> you know, and, and the kind of the person at the center of it is Jerry, who's allowing everybody's idiosyncrasies to become an asset to the band. No, no, no. no. no hold that, no, no, hold that no, D no, on, against. No, it's not. That's not why it's hard. It's hard to hold the hold the D against that slide. Yeah. Well, hold it. Don't hold it against the slide. Hold against his G. It's really weird if you don't slide at the same velocity. You know, game. Yeah, two, three, four. The band played Candyman virtually every night across the spring and early summer of 1970, almost always in their acoustic sets. A few times, they actually played it multiple times in a single night when they had both early and late shows. It was the newest, hottest dead tune. By the time they bailed on the Medicine Ball Caravan Tour in the beginning of August and went into Pacific High to demo their new album, Candyman was sounding a lot more confident. This is from the new batch of The Angel Share, American Beauty. harmonies were sounding a lot better, too. Let's just listen to the whole outro from the demo. Clearly pretty woodshedded by now. Look out, look out, the man. Here he come and he's gone again. There's a radio in here. Sorry about the radio, Phil. How else are we going to pick up the signal from here? Also included on the Angel Share is another version of Candyman. Here's Rhino archivist Mike Johnson and engineer Brian Kehu to explain. Candyman, the alternate version, that's on the official multitrack. 
that's an alternate version that lives on the multi-track that was turned in. I mean, it's an outtake and it's an alternate version, but it, it wasn't on a reel of its own. It was actually on the production multi-track master. In other words, from the same session, they had, let's say, a, a number of takes. They cut out two of them and moved them to the master tape. And so there are two candy men, if you want to call it that, candy people. So that's kind of interesting. Why did they do that? Was it a candidate? Somebody had to make a decision which one was better. So I smiled when I heard it thinking, here's these guys in San Francisco in 1970 putting down this new song. And they could never imagine that, you know, some eight years later, they'll be playing it at the pyramids in Egypt. One big difference in the versions is how they start. Did he say sex? The song's distinctive guitar intro is now finished, replacing the simple guitar strum they'd used previously. At the Fillmore West in mid-August, it stayed like that. But during the last week of the month, the band made a special appearance on the local public television station KQED. Viewers at home were invited to arrange their radios and television in a certain configuration in order to experience the music in quadraphonic sound. One of the Dead's new tricks that night was Candyman's new introduction. It would be ever thus. A few episodes back, Bob Weir made an observation about American beauty engineer Stephen Barncard, and it's worth repeating here. He got the vocal sounding right in your headphones, which makes it a lot easier to sing. With that in mind, listen to how the alternative take ends.
The vocals on American Beauty are slightly more reined in, but as you'll notice, there's a bit more going on. Candyman is a rich song. The final take is almost symphonic, with piano and organ ambiently weaving between pedal steel, acoustic guitars, and harmonies. Along with The Grateful Dead, it features the additional piano playing of Ned Lajan and organ by Howard Wales. Both were musicians with wide-ranging interests who virtually never played anything else that sounded like their contributions to American beauty. Ned Lajan came from the East Coast. In the spring, the Dead had played at MIT where they met Ned, then an undergrad. A psychedelicized electronic composer and serious jazz pianist, they hit it off immediately. By the end of their visit, they'd encourage Ned to get himself to California. It was after Working Man's Dead, and it was during American Beauty. When I arrived in California in the summer of 70, I flew, obviously, in by plane, and then I took a bus into San Francisco, and I can't remember if it was Phil or Jerry. They told me to meet them at uh, White Hyder Studio on the corner of Hyde and Turk. I, I have it emblazoned in my mind. I was so worried that I'd get lost that I, to this day, I remember Hyde and Turk. When I got in there, Jerry was the only one there, and he said, oh, it's good old Grateful Ned. And then he said, you can play on our album. It was very exciting, not only because of the Grateful Dead, but there was three studios there. And during the course of American Beauty, the Jefferson Airplane slash Starship were in another studio. And Crosby was in the studio once or twice jamming and playing. And then Santana was there. So it was already the beginning of what I saw as this exposure to the community of musicians uh, who were cross-pollinating and playing and sharing ideas. Ned spent the late summer of 1970 hanging out and playing with the dead, refining his piano part on Candyman to something simple. It would begin a remarkable half-decade partnership as Legion's musical world entwined with the dead's. They would go on to create Legion Seastones together. There's a brand new version of that out now. Check spiritcats.com for details. Ned also has a recent album called Cat Dreams, which takes his music in a different and fun direction, maybe a little more approachable, with hints of jazz and country, less noisy. You might dig it. We'll have a lot more soon on a very special good old Grateful Ned cast. Playing organ was Howard Wales, who would also appear on Broke Down Palace and Truckin'. After many other adventures in music, he'd come west from Milwaukee with his band, A.B. Sky. I thought it was either the best or one of the best albums they did. The Dead were not a, a they weren't really uh, looking for a hit. They had that one song, you know, uh, uh, but... Uh, they didn't really, uh, it was, they were the people, man, that was always on the road. They were incredible. What a road band. By the end of the song, Ned Legion, Howard Wales, and the Grateful Dead are all weaving together. And my old guitar past the New Yorker staff writer Nick Palmgarden. I just love the way that his guitar sounds in that song. I 
jelly sound. I mean, there must be a Leslie speaker gone there. Here's engineer Brian Kehoe to break down the tracks. One of the things revealed on the tape is that there's a longer introduction. Bill starts playing the drums to get a rhythm together before they begin playing, and then Jerry joins in on top. So during the mix, they muted the tracks until Jerry begins the song, and then they bring everyone else in just a bit later. Here's the original beginning as it is on the tape. For the Candyman sessions, let's listen to Bill's drum track first. There's just one drum track on this song. Starts out with the kick drum microphone. Then we have the overhead microphone. And another overhead that picks up some of the snare drum parts. And a snare drum microphone. It's all very basic sounds, just traditional drum recording. And here's everything combined together, the drum track as you heard on the record. And then Phil's bass, like a few songs before we've had where there are two bass tracks made from one performance. The first part is a very bright sound, very clear sound. Second track is a warm, low, almost dull tone. But the ultimate goal was to combine both of those into a sound with good, rich warmth and clarity on the top. Then the main electric guitar, Jerry's part, played live along with the drums in the room. Very distinctive stuff. And then Bobby doing a steady acoustic rhythm guitar. One of the benefits of going through these original tapes is to hear what was left behind. 
This is the actual Angel's Share portion we talk about. Here's the original guitar track. You heard that electric guitar playing all the way through the song, and it is on the record. But since they were playing live in the room together, Jerry actually did a solo, but it was not used. It was replaced later on. Here's the original solo that he put down. Even nicer is to let the tracks play out till the full end of the take. You can hear some more guitar work at the end of the song. Then we have a piano part recorded on two tracks. You'll hear one side first, and then the second side is added for true stereo. Of course, we need vocals. So on top of the completed rhythm track, they put on Jerry's lead vocal. Come all you pretty women with your hair a-hanging down. Open up your windows cause the candy man's in town. Once the lead vocal was finished, they begin to combine a few backing vocals. Look out, look out, the candy man. Here he come and he's gone again. Pretty lady ain't got no friend till the candy man comes around the game. At the same time, a second harmony was being recorded, and you can hear the results of that last track blending in on the microphone because these harmonies are being sung at the same time. Look out, look out, the candy man. Here he come and he's gone again. Pretty lady ain't got no friend till the candy man. And in keeping with their newfound exploration of vocal harmonies, we have another harmony added by Bob 
to complete a trio of backing vocals. Look out, look out, the candy man. Here he comes and he's gone again. Pretty lady ain't got no friend till the candy man come around again. It may not be noticeable just listening back to the tape, but they obviously spent a lot of time organizing and structuring and recording these backing vocals. It creates a really beautiful layered sound when you hear these backing voices all together. Look out, look out, the candy man. Here he comes and he's gone again. Pretty lady ain't got no Of course, we hear the finished result on the record itself, but here's an example of the lead vocal combined with those great backing vocals. Look out, look out, the candy man. Here he come and he's gone again. Pretty lady ain't got no friend till the candy man comes around. It's an exceptional bit of work and maybe will become your ringtone for 2021, but it may not even be the highlight of this great record. The highlight to me is the pedal steel guitar solo. Jerry had become quite proficient on it in a few short years, although it's a very difficult instrument to master. He's actually added some complexity to it, which adds a lot of interest. One part is he's playing it through the rotating speaker system called the Leslie Speaker. And in front of that, he's actually added a wah-wah pedal, like Hendrix and Cream used to use. It makes for quite an interesting sound, with some added studio chamber reverb to it. It's an incredibly haunting and effective part. Another little secret hidden in the tracks is that Jerry actually played this part all the way through the song. It seems certain that he was intending it only for the solo, so maybe just noodling around with the song as he played it, just in case. But we can hear some of that now that was never used in the original mix, and that will be our last look into the tracks of Candyman.
Thank you, Brian Kehu. Surprisingly, one thing Brian didn't find on the multi-track master was Howard Whale's Hammond organ part. It's hard to say exactly what happened or where it is, but one plausible reason is that the band had maybe already mixed the song down to two-track when they decided they wanted to add an organ to the song's finale and recorded Whale's playing along with the already mixed recording onto a separate tape. One of the mysteries of the ancients. For the solo, the band employed the hottest session player in town to add some pedal steel, who was, of course, Jerry Garcia. American Beauty co-producer Stephen Barncard was house engineer at Wally Heider's Hyde Street Studio in San Francisco. He just brought such magic to the sessions, and his primitive steel playing just always had the right, you know, heat. He, he was still learning. He was just woodshedding. All, that's all he would do is sit in his room. I think that's what Mountain Girl said, that uh, he was always playing that thing, always playing it, you know, you know, always, and that's why he wanted to sit in with everybody. Uh, that's why he sat Brewer and Shipley. I worked. That's one thing I did before I did uh, these others. Is uh, I, I did. Uh, I worked on uh, Tarkio with uh, Nick Ravenides. Uh and Jerry did a shot. He he played on Oh Mommy, I Ain't No Commie. That's Jerry. Some people say that he played on One Toke. He did not. That was a guitar player that uh, that played that. Oh Mommy was recorded on April twenty first, nineteen seventy just after the abandoned sessions at Pacific High and a weekend at the Fillmore West, and about a week before the dead themselves arrived at Hyder's for the proper American Beauty sessions. Here's Mike Brewer of Brewer and Shipley. I first met Jerry at a club called The Matrix in San Francisco. Uh, The band was called The Warlocks, and I also saw the Jefferson Airplane before Grace Slick had joined the band at The Matrix. I already knew Paul Kantner, uh, and David Freiberg was a friend of mine back in the folk days. He was in a folk duo. I drove him from Denver to San Francisco the first time I was ever there. That's how I ended up uh, meeting Paul Kantner and also uh, Jorma Kalkinen and various other people. I met Jerry at the Matrix and over the years would run into him here and there. When Tom Shipley and I started working at Wally Hyder's, we recorded five albums there, so we spent a lot of time at Wally Hyder's. And when we would do a show in San Francisco, Jerry would come to our shows. He was almost always at the studio. Back in those days, there was three studios, Studio A, was basically the Jefferson Airplanes studio because part of their original deal with RCA was uh, unlimited studio time. So it was like going to the office for them every day. They were always in there. And if they weren't recording, it was offshoots like Papa John Creech or uh, Hot Tuna. And Dad, of course, recorded there. And uh, Jerry did some of his solo stuff there. Bruin Shipley did a lot of a lot of recording there. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Sometimes it was just uh, Graham and David. You never knew who was going to be there. It was kind of an open house. People were, it was real open. Yeah, people would go from studio to studio and we'd stick our heads in to see what people were up to and listen to their music and whatever. But we were working on our Tarkio album, which had one toke over the line on it. And we'd written a song called Oh Mommy, I Ain't No Commie. We named Richard Nixon by name, personally, in that song. And it was, it was kind of a, a country song, so we thought it needed pedal steel guitar. Well, Jerry had just started playing pedal steel, so we found him in the studio, 
and said, Jerry, what do you think about playing on a song of ours? And he said, sure. So he pulled his pedal steel up and set it up, and we got a sound check and one or two takes. And he put it down, and, and there it was, and there it still is. And a connected story with that is Tom and I ended up being interviewed by Armed Forces Radio. And this is, of course, during the height of the Vietnam War. The woman interviewing us didn't have a clue who Brewer and Shipley were or know anything about our music. But uh, when it would come time to play a song, she would say, now let's hear something from Brewer and Shipley. She didn't even hear it. She didn't put it in. Somebody else down the line would insert the songs. So it ended up going to Vietnam on Armed Forces Radio. One took over the line, and oh, mommy, I ain't no commie. Got a whole lot of whole lot of airplay in Vietnam. I have met many uh, veterans over the years who have told me that they listened to us a lot and couldn't believe they were listening to one took over the line. And oh, mommy, I ain't no commie. Naming Richard Nixon, pretty funny, pretty funny. The band on Tarkio also included bassist John Kahn and drummer Bill Vett. Garcia had been playing with the rhythm section since the spring, joining them at the Matrix nearly every Monday when the dead were in town for a jam session led by Howard Wells. They would record their own album at Hyder's in November, called Hooterol. Hooterol basically was something that was spent, no spent on anything in terms of rehearsals and all that stuff. Got to the studio, just real right there, here guys that we're going to do and we're going to jam this thing. I wrote most of the songs, you know, about 85% of them. We knew each other, you know, but we never really recorded at that point, you know, so... That was, it was good. It, it worked out great. We'll have more visits from Howard Wales on future deadcasts. Bob Weir also remembers the traffic in Hyder's hallways. Wally Hyder was hopping at the time. That that, that studio would have us. We, I think uh, David Crosby was in there. Crosby, Stills, Nash had just been through there. Jefferson Airplane or, or Starship or, or probably Hot Tuna were in there. It was hard to get anything done because we were, uh, everybody was just hanging like a bunch of crows on the fence. Jerry Garcia was constantly making music. His newest partner in the summer of 1970 was David Crosby. Welcome to the Deadcast, Cros. I like Jerry playing with just about everybody. I, I love him with Grizz. I love him with uh, the Dead. I loved him with his own band. I loved him with me. I loved him every every combination of every chemistry I ever saw him in. I loved it. After Garcia started playing pedal steel in the spring of 1969, it was Crosby who was responsible for Jerry's first released session work as a pedal steel player. Crosby stills Nash & Young's Teach Your Children, recorded in October 1969. 
Jerry had been playing live with the new riders of the Purple Sage, and had done one studio session on pedal steel with the Cloud Brothers, which remained unreleased until 2015. So how did Crosby hear that Jerry had taken up pedal steel? He told me. <laughs> Go straight to the source. He told me that he, was, that he was learning how to do it, and I said, oh man, that'll be terrific. It's a moving tone instrument. It's like a, a sitar. It's a fantastic tool. I said, I thought that it would be the guitar of the future because it's a moving tone instrument, you know, uh, which makes it capable of going a lot further than, than most instruments. Now, because you can bend a guitar, it's a moving tone instrument too. But uh, pedal steel with a bunch of tone modifiers is probably the most complex way to, to do it of all and probably the most difficult, but I think maybe in the long run, it'll be the most capable. And really only used in country music, pretty much, solely. People started messing around with it, putting tone modifiers on it. Sneaky Pete was the first guy I heard do it. But once you, once you take that instrument and start applying different kind of tone modifiers to it, well, th there's really no limit to what you can get it to do. He showed me the instrument uh, at his place and, and showed me that he was fooling around with it. But I was just betting on him. He was so melodic in his soul, you know, that it really couldn't help it. You know, even as a new player, he, he just couldn't help it. The melody just poured out of him, you know, in all directions all the time. You who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. You can hear more about the Teach Your Children session in our episode about Black Peter on the last season of the Good Old Grateful Deadcast when we spoke with Teach Your Children songwriter Graham Nash. The thing about Jerry Man was that he didn't play licks. Everybody else that learned the guitar learned those blues scales. The pentatonic scale. Everybody plays it. And they all got entranced with playing scales fast. Jerry didn't. Jerry didn't. What he played was melodies right off the top of his head. He didn't play guitar licks. You never hear him go, because everybody else did it already. And he didn't do that. He did what was coming off the top of his head. It's as if his hands grew right out of his forehead. The guy didn't have any distance between the tips of his fingers and the front of his mind. No distance at all. It was a complete transfer from the mind to the tips of the fingers. And he didn't think when he was playing very much unless he wanted to, unless he, he needed to do it for structure or for, because it was a time thing that he had to remember or something. When he was just playing, when he was just goofing off with me, he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking at all. It was just a straight connect from somewhere in his brain that created melody to the tips of his fingers. And he did it all the time with any instrument he picked up. We would talk and play music together at the same time, all the time. We, if we were talking, we'd probably have a guitar and, and each, and we'd be noodling while we talked, or talking while we noodled. One topic of interest was science fiction, which informed Paul Kantner's Blows Against the Empire, recorded just before American Beauty at Wally Hyder's, with participation for both Crosby and Garcia on the track Starship and Have You Seen the Stars Tonight. Have you seen the stars tonight? Would you like to go up for a stroll and keep me company? 
talked about it i wish to god i'd known then about a ian banks who's my favorite science fiction author now uh it's the guy with the culture series i think jerry would have absolutely loved it but we talked about people like heinlein and van vogt and, and all kinds of standard parts of, of the science fiction you know thing it's funny how many hippies really liked science fiction because anything was possible and you could you know have big dreams over the course of 1970, in the studios at Hyder's, Crosby and Garcia would intersect more and more, culminating in their most famous collaboration, Crosby's debut solo album, If I Could Only Remember My Name. We'll have to wait for the second part of our interview with David to get into that fully, coming up in a few more episodes. Cros intersected with the Dead's world in many ways. One person from the Dead scene that he met early on was Augustus Owsley Stanley III, a.k.a. The Bear. Why is it the bear stories always start with laughter? Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, here's how I met the bear. I'm in Los Angeles Airport, LAX, and this guy, kind of looking a little strange, comes up to me and says, you Crosby? And I looked at him and I said, uh, well, maybe. And he said, I'm Augustus Stanley Housley. And I said, great, who's that? And then anyway, I realized what the last name had been. And I said, holy shit. And he said, you want some? <laughs> and I said, fuck yes, I want some. And he gave me some of his first. Remember when he, before he got the tabbing machine, when he made the little blue barrels called Blue Cheer? It was before he got the tabbing machine. They were little blue barrels. And uh, they were called Blue Cheer. And they were very good. And they worked. Then he got the tabbing machine and he made Purple Haze from White Lightning. Remember those batches, right? Sure. I'm sure you did. I had many interactions with him. I remember running into him at Monterey, at the Monterey Pop Festival. He had a light tan leather jacket on and both pockets were full of purple haze. And he was just handing it out. He was just saying, you'd put your hand out and he'd drop one in there and you'd pop it. And I, what I don't understand is how those other guys played on that shit. Hendrix played on that shit. I don't know how the fuck you do that. I tried playing on acid. Man, the guitar was three feet thick. The strings were rubber. And I was playing a really great tune. And the other guys in the band were playing another different, really great tune. <laughs> it was really fucking weird. I do not recommend it at all. But uh, he managed it. I don't know how the fuck he did it. One historical note I'll insert here, because I'm positive Bear would insist. The special LSD that Owsley made for the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 was called Monterey Purple, not Purple Haze. Jimi Hendrix's song Purple Haze actually predated it very slightly, released in the UK in the spring of 67 and in the United States that June, the same weekend as Monterey Pop, actually. Easy enough to confuse. I wish we'd been smarter. We were doing 125 mics, or sometimes more, and that's actually more than you need to do. Paul and Grace did a really smart thing, man. They, You know the little tiny Altoid cans, the ones that are only about this big? They would take one of those, and they'd put two or three tabs in there, and they'd shake it. It's a little metal can. They'd shake it. Then they'd open it, put a finger in, scoop the dust off of the lid, and snort that. And it was like microdosing before anybody knew what microdosing was. And it absolutely worked fucking great because it went in right now because you snorted it, it went into your mucous membranes and went into your bloodstream right now. So you didn't have the, oh, shit, it's not taking any effect. I'll take some more. It, 
You didn't make that mistake because it, it took effect right now. And you could titrate, you could gauge your high because you were not waiting a half hour for it to take effect. You, could, you knew right now how much you had taken and you'd taken it a little bit at a time. And it, it worked really great. Paul and Grace invented it. Uh, they invented microdosing. I, I don't know anybody else that was doing anything like that. Another person David Crosby crossed paths with through the Dead's world was Ned Lajan. Cross would go on to contribute to Ned Seastone's project, recorded between 1970 and 1975, and perform with the live version of the group. Ned was a, a wonderfully strange musician, very determined to push the envelope, which of course is what caught Phil's uh, uh, attention and Jerry's. He was trying to do stuff with electronic music, and they approved of that. They, they wanted to push the barriers back as much as he did. So he was hanging out and he was doing something experimental. And I, I thought that was really fun. We, we did fool around some. I don't think I contributed that much, but I think Gary and Phil did. Lots. David contributed more than he takes credit for, appearing on both Ned Seastone's album and some of the circulating live recordings of the era. We'll have more from David down the line, but you can also scratch your craws itch with his own limited-run podcast with Steve Silberman, Freak Flag Flying, that came out last year from our pals at Osiris. Eventually becoming a local member of the Bay Area music scene, Ned Lajan contributed much to the dead over the next half-decade. While American Beauty was the first time he joined them on record, he became a live contributor as well. When the Dead played at the Capitol Theater in Portchester in February 1971, Ned Lajan joined them on clavichord for nearly the entire show, which is now featured as the bonus disc on the new three-disc expanded edition of American Beauty, remixed from the original tapes by Jeffrey Norman. When they hit Candyman, Ned doesn't exactly reprise his part, because he's playing an entirely different keyboard. February 18, 1971 show is a pivotal gig in Dead history, no matter how you slice it. The band debuted five new originals, including Warfrat, Greatest Story Ever Told, Bertha, Loser, and Playing in the Band. Dr. Stanley Krippner and the Capitol crowd undertook experiments in dream telepathy, sending images back to sleeping subjects at the Maimonides Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn. And it also turned out to be Mickey Hart's last appearance with the Grateful Dead for more than three years. It's been a legendary dead tape for decades, but deadheads have never heard it like this. Archivist David Lemieux. What we've all been hearing going back to 1988 um, have been the two-track live recordings. They're not PA tapes. They sound amazing. But the Grateful Dead have always held the multi-tracks, the 16-track analog tapes of all six nights. That's what this is produced from, just as Three from the Vault from uh, 219 the next night. And uh, Working Man's Dead, of course, had 221 the third night, which still leaves the uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth night for future endeavors. What we learned in listening to these multis, Mickey comes and goes during this show. He plays on most of it, and there's a few songs that he plays so exceptionally well, 
it's hard to believe that literally as he walked off stage, he didn't come back. He, he was like hours later, he was gone for the next four years. And he plays so incredibly well in such important parts to so many of the songs. And then there are some of the songs where it almost felt like a show where, uh, like a loose uh, amalgamation of friends where you could get up and play or not kind of like an acid test, you know, where you could, play or not. And that's kind of the feeling I get when listening to this because Jeffrey would be mixing and he'd send a note to Dave Glass or the mastering engineer on this and myself. And he'd say, Hey, Mickey's not playing on this, which I never noticed only because you're listening to the whole song and you're, you're maybe thinking, well, he's clearly there. I'm just, he might be doing something light-handed, but sometimes he's not doing anything. Sometimes he's doing the most minor percussion thing, but it's incredibly important. So we made sure that Mickey is certainly prominent in the mix as he should be on the songs he plays on, which is interesting. And we also get to hear a lot of Ned playing keyboards on here. Interesting. Again, he comes and goes. And that's why I kind of have this analogy of an acid test where you could play or not. And that's what happens with Ned. Some songs he's there and some he's not. And we we cranked up his mic and he's just not there sometimes. Um, it's interesting. Lost amidst all the other news, it was also the last version of Candyman that the Dead would play for over a year and a half. Deadcast musicology correspondent Bob Weir remembers one other Candyman song, though. Who can take a sunrise? Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with you. Candyman, the Candyman, oh the Candyman can, the Candyman can, the Candyman can, cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. And then um, Sammy Davis Jr. did a tune called Candyman, and it was, I, I hate to say it, but it, it seemed to me awfully trite and just shallow. I think I'm probably giving a kind description to it. Uh, compared to what uh, Jerry or Hunter would have given to it. Written for the musical film adaptation Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and released in the summer of 1971, it became an even bigger hit the next year when Sammy Davis Jr. released his cover of it. And in the fall of 72, perhaps spurred by hearing it one too many times in elevators, they brought back their own version. Archivist David Lemieux. In 1973, 74, it wasn't played that often. So when you do see it on a set list, you're like, oh, that's still around. I forgot about that. And it's played incredibly well. And by 73, 74, that song is very different live than it was in the studio. Jerry's solo in it, both in live versions of all eras and on the album, it is one of the most, and it's very straightforward, I think, but it's one of the most ethereal things. from Winterland, February 24th, 1974, released on Dave's Picks 13, itself the last version for several years. Donna's harmonies, when they came back in 76, were magnificent. Magnificent. I, I cannot get over how great she sounded in 76 when they came back.
was in that era, too, that Deadheads began to cheer for Jerry Garcia as the Candyman. Both of those came from June 11, 1976 at the Boston Music Hall on the June 1976 box set. There was another line that started to get cheers a lot, too, in the post-hiatus years. Here it is on the Dead Set version, recorded October 29, 1980, at Radio City Music Hall in New York. Good morning, Mr. Benz. I see Robert Hunter observed that cheering, too, and it worried him a bit. He told Blair Jackson in 1988, The first time I ran into that phenomenon was when I went to the movie Rollerball and saw that people were cheering the violence that was happening. I couldn't believe it. I hope that people realize that the character in Candyman is a character and not me. But besides the Candyman, there's another character Robert Hunter pulled from folk music. Mr. Benson. If you ever go to Houston, then you better walk or ride. You better not stagger, and you better not fight. Cause Sheriff Benson will arrest you. He'll carry you on down. And if the jury finds you guilty, you're penitentiary bound. That was Harry Belafonte doing Midnight Special, released in 1962 with a barely legal Bob Dylan on harmonica. There likely wasn't literally a Sheriff Benson. The musicologist Mac McCormick believes that Sheriff Benson probably originates with an infamous Houston sheriff, T.A. Binfer. The name probably shifted through versions by many different singers, most notably Leadbelly, who sometimes sang of Benson Crocker. Whether there was a real-life Mr. Benson or not, the resonance clearly carried into the dead's Candyman. Like Mr. Charlie a few years later, adding Mr. made him the perfect faceless enemy. For a deep take on the cheering in Candyman, here's Long Strange Trip director Amir Barlev. It's one of the Grateful Dead songs that are about bad people. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, as a psychedelic ritual, we all would gather and heartily belt out these lyrics, which are about shooting people with shotguns and taking advantage of women and, you know, behavior that nobody condones. But part of the psychedelic ritual, whether you are high or not, is trying to occupy perspectives that are anathema to your perspective. The classic song that does that is Warfrat. Jack Straw is another one. Loser. You know, I, I was thinking Loser is Candyman a few years later. You know, he's got a lot of gusto and bravado and he's sure he's going to win and he's aces and, and now and Candyman and now in Loser, the same guy is like sounding a note of desperation, but he's still trying to trying to win. You know, if you really think about the words to Candyman, it's pussy grabbing stuff. Candyman's an asshole, you know, and I think that's one of the great things about the dead is that we were encouraged to try to see things from perspectives that are not our own. You know, that's, that's why I included the, 
the Frankenstein thing in, in Long Strange Trip is that Jerry wanted to make something that terrified him a friend. And, you know, similarly in singing along and celebrating songs like Candyman, we're not saying, you know, I'll blow you straight to hell. We're not celebrating violence. We're just exercising our brains and, and putting our, the limitations of our own perspective through kind of, you know, uh, calisthenics. What better way to do calisthenics than pretend to be and try to think what it would be like to be a bad person, you know? I, don't, I shouldn't even say bad person, but a guy who, you know, who's consumed with taking advantage of women and winning at games and probably cheating at games and, and shooting some, some poor Mr. Benson guy. We don't know what he did. But I lament the fact that, you know, you might not be able to write a song like Candyman anymore. Maybe the last time we did that was, was when hip hop was at its height. In a way, Candyman's kind of a hip hop song. And, you know, people say, oh, God, hip hop, it's just about, you know, violence and, you know, materialism or something like that. No, it's also kind of play acting at, at different roles in the same way that, you know, singing along to Loser or Jack Straw or... Any one of these songs is, is not actually embracing that kind of behavior. It's, it's talking about the multiplicity of different ways there are to be a human being, which is deeply psychedelic. Which isn't to say there weren't real Candyman types lurking in the world around the Grateful Dead. In some ways, though, the Candyman comes on like a slightly more consensual version of the Rolling Stones' infamous Midnight Rambler. Still not a nice guy, but he's not going to come inside unless invited. The Candyman's life in popular music has continued onwards. In the late 80s, there was a rapper named Candyman, part of the NWA crew. One of the more recent Candyman is Christina Aguilera's, a Grammy-nominated single in 2008. As archivist David Lemieux was saying about the Dead's version, The first time I heard it live would have been Dead Set, because I was one of the first records I got. And I was like, oh, that song I love from American Beauty. I, I'd, heard, I'd heard Candyman on a friend's cassette. I didn't have the album yet. And I remember hearing, I was like, oh, this is, this is different, but it's still exactly the same. And he had this solo that uh, was very different from the album version, but uh, it was still ethereal. <laughs> Whatever filter he's playing through, whatever effects, it makes this straightforward guitar sound unlike anything we've ever heard before. And and more often than not, Jerry nailed that solo perfectly. We'll sign off with the Candyman solo from October 3rd, 1987 at Shoreline in Mountain View, California, on View from the Vault 3. This features what our friend Mr. Completely calls the underwater cathedral effect. See you next time.
I love the quote from Jerry where he talked about taking folk song traditions and crafting new tunes with them. Candyman is one of those songs that gets into your subconscious, and I think that part of the reason it draws such a big reaction when it gets performed is it triggers that connection it has made with us, which gets compounded exponentially in a concert setting where we're surrounded by like minds. Powerful stuff. Thanks very much for tuning in. Visit us over at dead.net slash deadcast. Spread the love and light and share this podcast with your neighbor. See you next episode. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Deadcast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.